So hi and welcome to the History of Software podcast. This is our fourth episode. My name is Podger Coffey. I'm the CEO of Zartis, a software company and a historian in terms of academic background. This week we're joined by John Dennehy, who is the founder of Zartis, Higher Hive and many other ventures. So how are you today, John? I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show, Podrick. I'm delighted to have you. So our topic for today is hacker culture in the 1970s. And we're going to look at what was going on as the center of gravity in the movement shifted to the West Coast and specifically to Northern California. That being said, important things kept happening in Boston, specifically at MIT. And there were some interesting things happening in New Jersey, too, where our producer Nick is based, and even in France, which was a little bit of an unexpected twist for me in this research. Just to recap, uh, we can ask ourselves again the question, what is hacker culture? So, John, as our guest today, it would probably be interesting to push that over to you as to what your understanding of, of hacker culture is. Well, I, I was reading about it yesterday, and I, I believe the word hacker comes from a person who used to make furniture with an axe. So I think we've, we've come a long way from that early definition. Uh, but I think that the, the sentiment and the ethos stays the same. For me, uh, you know, a hacker is defined, I guess, in computer software terms, especially in terms of cybersecurity was somebody who would basically uh, generally break into systems like a black hat hacker. Uh, but I guess it's kind of got broader now. We talk about hacking in terms of, you know, hacking business models and, you know, all sorts of hacking, hacking, hacking lifestyles. Um, but what I think of it uh, in terms of security context, I think guys who were just having fun, really. Uh, and a lot of that started in the 70s. And their fun was by seeing what they could do with a system in terms of what it wasn't meant to do. In our previous episodes, we've been looking a lot at the work of a tech journalist called Steve Levy, and he has given the understanding of hacking as being anything uh, related to programming or other media that's entered into in a spirit of playfulness and exploration. Um, he also articulates that hacking originated from the tech model railroad club in MIT. So if you can imagine these kind of Uber nerds uh, with their model trains were effectively dumpster diving for parts outside of defense contractors and they were hacking together components to program uh, how the trains would run in terms of signals and power and what route would be followed across different tracks, etc. We also, in previous episodes, we spoke about how Project Mac at MIT led to the beginning of modern computer networking, and this was funded by ARPA. And John, there's a kind of an interesting tension in all of this because you have this movement based on idealism and utopian principles uh, paid for by the US Defense Department. <laughs> so it's, there's kind of an un uneasy coexistence, I think, going on between these programmers, these engineers, and uh, I suppose the, the authority or the government that was paying for everything. That's been the case uh, ever since as well. Like a lot of the best technology that we have in terms of consumer tech um, has its roots in, in military uh, budgets. So, you know, the fact that was happening in the 70s, I guess, shouldn't, shouldn't be a huge surprise to us. But it is, it does cause an interesting tension for sure. 
So we might we might kick off looking at um, ARPA, uh, ARPANET, and, and DARPANET. So effectively, in the late nineteen fifties, the US was, to use a kind of a local term here in court, caught in the hop, um, by the launch of the Sputnik uh, space satellite by the USSR. So from there, Eisenhower started pushing vast amounts of money into uh, a new agency and the purpose of this agency was to ensure that the United States remained at the forefront of technological innovation. So they were really keen to ensure they weren't caught on the, on the back foot again in technological terms. And uh, the first ever messaging exchange between computers took place on the ARPANET when a computer in a lab in UCLA sent a message to one in Stanford. And the idea was that they would send a message saying, log in. And they got as far as L and O, and you know that was deemed to be a success in terms of getting a message from one computer to another. And if you move a little bit forward to 1971, there was an engineer called Ray Tomlinson, and he began working on an electronic mail system to facilitate correspondence between users of the ARPANET. So when we look back at this era, you can start to see the modern use of computing and things that we interact with on a daily basis really starting to come into life. Um, also in relation to ARPANET, it's probably worth mentioning that in 71, there was an engineer called Vinton Cerf, and he began working on a system to connect computers and networks across the globe, which was called Transmission Control Protocol, or TCP. And again, we're seeing the foundations being laid for our modern internet. So we should take a look at something called Cyclades. We've been taking a very US-centric approach in assessing a lot of this innovation, but we shouldn't forget that while the majority of innovation taking place was in America and funded by national security concerns, the British and the French had their part to play in the blossoming of internet culture. There was a computer scientist called Louis Poussin, who was in charge of the Cyclades initiative. And from 1971 to 76, he worked on bringing this project to life. So Cyclades utilized packet switching methods for information exchange. And where it differed to ARPANET was its focus on internetworking rather than exchanging information within a defined network. So to put it simply, the advances made by Cyclades in packet switching and having a simplified network architecture and making hosts responsible for reliability had huge implications for the development of the modern internet. Like without Poussin's work, we don't arrive to this TCP IP protocol, which underpins the whole internet and how it works. Uh, John, have you come across Poussin or Cyclades or any of this before? Only briefly, and thanks for uh, introducing me to the, to the project. So, you know, we do have a lot to thank the French for, and we should refer maybe to the internet, uh, as, as it should maybe be called sometimes. Um, I think what they did was really interesting. Like while, while in the US, DARPANET was trying to build a network of networks, and the, the, the way it was structured and engineered uh, was described as a way to withstand a nuclear war, that if one node was, was knocked out, the other nodes would actually be able to still communicate. So you had this distributed network effect that would be very hard to shut down in the event of war. And like that concept goes back again to the military funding in the US. I think the French didn't take as militaristic an approach. 
Uh, I think it was more kind of a, an, an academic approach that they were taking. And for that, we have to be thankful um, because we, as you, as you mentioned, Vincent Cerf and others um, developed uh, TCP IP, which the entire internet runs on, you know, so it came from that pioneering work in France. I think the, the other interesting thing about, you know, the French variety of the internet was that uh, this first phase you're, you're talking about was all about infrastructure and it was about the kind of the, the engineering layers that would allow information to be transported. I think where France really uh, took an interesting slant and an interesting turn was when they allowed access to the the, the phone book, the white pages and the yellow pages uh, a little bit later. It was in the 1980s that it was released, but during the 1970s, a French uh, telecommunications company was the state agency was working on uh, electronic phone books, uh, which would be used by the majority of the population uh, in time. And what they did was amazing. It was called Minitel. I remember. I remember seeing it actually as, as, a, as a kid in France uh, and a, a host that I was staying with uh, was going to book tickets for a show we were going to and he pulled out this magical box, this magical Minitel box and he went online and he ordered tickets for the show we were going to and paid for them online um, and that was in the early 80s, uh, long, long time before e-commerce web browsers had emerged. I think there were there were a couple of million people in France using Minitel at its height, and they actually even exported the technology, the hardware and the software. They exported it um, to countries including Ireland um, at, at some stage later. Uh, but what was really interesting was that they, they were they were doing the things that the modern internet, or the internet of the 1990s certainly was all about. Like they were facilitating e-commerce. They had email. They had online chat. Being French, of course, they had online dating. Uh, but they also had all of the newspapers putting content onto their system. Um, so, you know, th there are foundation stones of the modern internet in terms of the, the transportation layer and TCPIP that we should be thankful to the French for. But there's also elements of innovation and pioneering work that were done in, in, on the actual content layer. Um, and we could have a very different internet, you know, if, if some of those... If some of those content services had taken off, you know, it could have been very different to what it was. I, I've had my own interactions with Minitel in France in the early to mid 90s. And uh, yeah, I remember being kind of slightly taken aback by this, you know, it, it didn't look like cutting edge technology. It was kind of clunky hardware and kind of dusty stuff. But um, yeah, they, they certainly made their contribution. It's, it's really interesting um, when we look at someone like Louis Poussin, and uh, you know the advances he made in, in Cycladis, which fed into Minitel over time. So Poussin actually came into extensive contact with hacker culture because he spent a lot of time in MIT in the mid-1960s. So he was working as a staff member of the MIT Computer Center, and he was also working on something called CTSS, which was one of the first time-sharing systems. And also something called Runcom, which was the first uh, operating system shell. So Poussin is a guy that I've only been learning about uh, in the past days doing this research. But it's amazing to think of like the world of technology that we're interacting with at a daily basis. So much of it coming from this kind of concentrated hub around MIT kicking off in the late 1950s through the 1960s and then you have academics leaving MIT moving out to West Coast universities and then you know founding AI labs and really professionalizing the computer science faculty there certainly was a massive impact from MIT. 
Yeah, and that's continued on. I mean, if, if you look at the impact today, you know, from Silicon Valley over the last like 10 or 15 years, it's been phenomenal. Like that's such a small geographic area uh, would have such immense impact on the evolution of, you know, something so profound as, as the Internet and, and, and the way we consume all media now. Uh, it's just been incredible. There's, I mean, I don't know if there's many other parallels in history to that, um, but you're, you're going back to the real roots of it there in the 70s where you know it came down to a very small number of individuals and i know you're going to talk about other topics later but some of those individuals went on to found you know some of the biggest software companies in the world and become some of the richest people in the world we should roll back to 1969 and uh, relocate ourselves to new jersey and a bell labs engineer called ken thompson was inventing something called unix so john What's your kind of familiarity with Unix and what it was all about and the impact it's had on the world? My personal experience with Unix was just that it, in you know, in the mid '90s, it allowed you run X Windows and you could run the first web browser, the Mosaic browser. Um, that was my my first interaction with with Unix. So God bless the guys for building it and, and allowing me to do that. Um, you know, I I think again it's profound that something that evolved about fifty years ago is is still so popular and it's still like it's transitioned from kind of mainframe to personal computers uh and more recently into you know computers in our pockets in the form of android being you know such a massive operating system for for mobile devices uh and and the roots of it are are go back a long way and have amazing contributions from fantastic people in terms of open source distributions and open source software development over the years like when you ask the question why Unix is so important in the history of software development and there are a number of answers to this but one that emerged is that Unix facilitated the emergence of the C programming language which poured gasoline on the fire of innovation. So you have Ken Thompson at Bell Labs using a salvaged PDP-7 to create Unix and the idea here was something that we take for granted today that you would make a lot of the complexity of an operating system invisible to most users or invisible even to programmers. So it, it's kind of a bit of a mindset shift there when you think of like to what extent you're consciously interacting with your operating system. Like it's not at all for most people. Uh, but when you head back to the late 1960s and early 1970s, you were very much engaging with your operating system in a very conscious way. So you have Ken Thompson creating Unix and another hacker by the name of Dennis Ritchie created the C language and both are judged to have provided a huge step forward for computing in terms of flexibility, in terms of ease of use and the overall lack of clunkiness. So by the end of the 1970s, uh, Ritchie and Thompson had written an entire operating system in C and according to uh, a hacker called Eric S. Raymond, or ESR, who's very famous within the, the hacker movement, the implications of this were huge. And John, can you can you guess why? Uh, no, I'm going to have to dial a friend. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, you can dial me in on that one. Um, so to quote ESR, he said, if Unix could present the same face, the same, cap same capabilities on machines of many different types, it could serve as a common software environment for all of them. No longer would users have to pay for complete new designs of software every time a machine went obsolete. 
hackers could carry around software toolkits between different machines rather than having to reinvent the equivalence of fire and the wheel every time. Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's a good answer. And I think we're all the wiser <laughs> for knowing that. So ESR also mentions that a huge advantage for C compared to most languages before or since is that a programmer can keep the entire logical structure of the language in their head and don't need constant reference to you know manuals or stack overflow or things like that. So it's quite interesting. And probably the last topic in relation to Unix that we should mention is Usenet. Uh, which was developed in the late 1970s uh, by engineers called Tom Truscott and Jim Ellis. And Usenet is still in operation today. Well, Usenet, I think, had a, had a major impact on modern internet culture, uh, including yeah. the first instance of online spam. And actually, that first recorded instance of online spam was uh, green card attorneys hawking their ways I remember it. I remember it, Patrick. I was actually in South Africa at the time when it happened, and I was a member of the Rhodes Computer Users Society. And we had, we had, in, it was in 1994, uh, and we had access to web browsers, and we, we did use Usenet. I mean, we were using um, news groups basically because there were very few websites with any substantial content. But the, the ethos of the entire internet was like there should be no commercial activity. And I remember those that green card lottery came out and it was pushed out and guys spammed into the news groups. And it was it was mass hysteria. Like all of the early internet users went absolutely ballistic because you don't use the internet for commercial purposes. I mean, if you told a kid that today, they'd, they'd find it laughable. I mean, the internet's become, you know, a, 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 in many parts of it, an online shopping mall. Uh, but back then there was a, you know, a sense of purity and that you don't destroy that with commercial activity. Um, so yeah, I do. I do remember that. That was, that was a kind of a, a turning point, I think, in the internet's history. We've gotten a bit esoteric in terms of the topics we've been talking about, so we might bring things back a little bit more to the mainstream and explore a bit about Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. So let's start with Woz, as he was known, uh, a California native and attended college in Boulder, Colorado, prior to being expelled for hacking into the school's computer system and sending prank messages. So we can see the spirit of hacker playfulness was certainly alive. Was attended Berkeley for a while after that, before dropping out to work at HP, where he was involved in designing calculators. And Wozniak befriended Steve Jobs. They both worked in HP before putting their focus on something called blue boxes which were devices that I can only assume were illegal that allowed owners of the devices to make no-cost long-distance calls. John, is this something you've ever come across before? Uh, I have to put my hand up and admit mea culpa in certain regards. <laughs> um, so the, the, the blue box, it, it imitated the tone signal so that you could make the free calls, like you said. Um, but I don't know if you remember this, but you, you could actually do that on any public phone. So when we were kids, we used to go into the, the public phones and if you you'd lift the receiver of the phone and then you'd tap down the, um, the little uh, where, where the cradle is, you'd tap that down uh, and you could actually, if you tap the number that corresponded to a phone number you were dialing, um, you could actually, it would connect the two calls for free. So you didn't have to put in your, your quarters or your 10Ps or, or whatever currency you were using. Um, so a lot of kids, um, you know, in, 
in the kind of early 80s, I think, play, or a lot of kids I knew anyway, <laughs> used to play with this. So I think what, what was obviously, was the acting jobs were obviously doing something similar, but they were taking it to the next level where they could actually programmatically do that. So it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, they were they were selling these blue boxes for $150 a pop. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out how this could possibly be legal. But, you know, anyway, this is the 1970s and this is hacker culture. Yeah, you just kind of take it, though. Like when we were doing it, like legality never kind of we would never have thought, is it legal or is it not legal? It just it wasn't even an issue. It was just could it be done or couldn't it be done? You know, um, th- there was guys who used to actually whistle down the phones as well. I came across a guy, John Draper. Uh, Captain Crunch, he was called. Um, there was some uh, cereal in America, and they gave out a free whistle with the cereal box. So he used to use a whistle to <laughs> imitate um, sounds down the down the telephone lines that would give him free calls. <laughs> Another interesting character. So basically, the, the the contraption they were giving out in the cereal boxes could be used to facilitate no cost long distance calls. Is that correct? There's a strong connection between. Uh, audio in general and, com- and computers in, in the 70s and, and 80s like even computer games uh, in the 80s were transmitted over radio and you could actually record the game with like a tape recorder and then you could play that uh, sound back into your computer and you'd have a free game i was babysitting my niece and nephew on saturday night and we decided to watch a movie so I, uh, you know, I asked them what they wanted to watch, and they selected Jobs, the uh, biopic on Steve Jobs starring Ashton Kutcher, which, which is actually, I mean, it's worth a watch. It's it's not like the worst movie ever made, but just thought it was fascinating that like for a twelve year old and a fourteen year old these days, you know, the founder of Apple is seen as a cool character that you want to watch a movie about. Yeah, I mean, at the time he was he was pretty left to center, right? I mean, back in the seventies. Like he was mixing his, you know, carrot and celery juices and not washing for weeks on end and practicing um, mystic or mysticism that he had learned in the ashrams in India uh, and, and promoting, uh, amongst other things, the use of LSD. So he's certainly a, a left to field character. Yeah, he certainly was. Um, so in 75, Wozniak began working on the first Apple computer. And by the middle of that year, he had achieved a first which was to have a character displayed on a TV screen that was generated by a mini computer. And by early 76, the first prototype was basically ready. And Wozniak effectively designed by himself everything in terms of the hardware, the circuit board, and the operating system. Um, Steve Jobs is by now probably the most famous person in the history of software. So Jobs was born and raised in the Bay Area of San Francisco, and he appears to have been somewhat of a weird kid growing up. So he's finding it difficult to relate to children of his own age. And he was befriending like local engineers in the Mountain View area and machinists. And I came across a pretty interesting story, which was that at the age of 13, he got a summer job at Hewlett Packard after he cold called Bill Hewlett to ask him for some spare parts. So even at this early stage, you can see like a really ambitious, brave style, kind of a clearly a very kind of quirky kid. Yeah, and I guess, you know, the the counterbalance there then was in, was Wozniak, who was just technically superb. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's always questions about the share structure in, in Apple and how Jobs kind of got the more shares from uh, from Wozniak because he just had a smarter business sense. Like 
after Apple, I believe, Wozniak went on to uh, form a company to build a universal remote control, you know, like to, to go from what they were doing, like, you know, this groundbreaking, um, you know, once in a, in a century event of like bringing personal computers to the household, he goes on to like fix the problem of remote controls. <laughs> you know, he obviously had the tech chops and, and Jobs had, the, you know, the tech chops plus the business savvy. So I guess it was a powerful combination when they were working together. I think so too. And I guess yeah, Jobs had that visionary quality. So, you know, it, it's been simply reduced by some writers on this topic to a dynamic whereby Waz is the technical genius and Jobs is the, is the marketing guy, essentially. Um, according to Wozniak, uh, Steve Jobs got a job at Atari because Jobs brought one of Wozniak's inventions with him to an interview and passed it off as his own. So you see these little stories of Steve Jobs' behavior that you would maybe, you know, characterize as being somewhat less than heroic in some moments. But then this is all counterbalanced by this like incredible visionary quality and capacity to understand how technology and how software and how computer or how consumer electronics could save uh, save the world is the wrong term would change the world thanks again for for listening this week our guest was john dennehy and our producer as always is nick brennan uh music comes from rob cooney and so we hope you'll join us again next week when we delve even further into hacker culture of the late 1970s and into the 1980s. Thanks for having me on the show, Padraig. And it's fantastic that you're actually running this podcast. I think it's something that's missing. Uh, and there's a, there's a gap there. People are interested in you know, the history of uh, the internet and the history of technology in general. That's um, Sometimes it's hard to find content related to this. And it's something that's affected all of our lives. So well done for doing it and good luck with it. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's super interesting as soon as you start kind of peeling back, it's like the whole onion effect. You start, you know, peeling back some layers and you can really disappear down the rabbit hole and get very deep into things. But yeah, it's been uh, it's been very interesting so far over the past couple of months and uh, we continue to push on in the weeks ahead. So we, we hope you'll join us again for a future episode. Great. Thank you. I certainly will. Take care. <laughs> Thank you.